Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle in 1962, last Wednesday's afternoon, they'll bend your ears with reckless self abandon. The amazing spider talk. The amazing spider talk. Come swing through the air, sit back and prepare for the amazing. Hello, I'm Dapper Dan Gavazdan, and I'm the founder and editor of the AmazingSpiderTalk.com. And I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, founder of the Chasing Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Well, thanks for joining us, everyone, for episode six of the second season of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Yeah, Dan. So after kind of uh, doing something a little different last time out, uh, here in that episode six of the second season, uh, we're continuing with our journey through Spider-Man hitting the big time during the Stan Lee and John Romita senior run on Amazing Spider-Man. In that case, we're talking about the first ever eight part. Well, I mean, it's just the first ever multi-part, like more than three or four uh, issues, but eight part, I guess, you know. I guess that still counts as a first ever, right? <laughs> <laughs> go collect this one. That, that's yeah, what we're saying. <laughs> it's definitely sure to ra- bounce up as high as Amazing Spider-Man 263 did this week. Yeah, oh, goodness. Uh, I don't even want to get into that right now. Well, anyway, <laughs> this, is, this story uh, dips into some social commentary and really expands the, the – the supporting cast and the rogues gallery. Yeah, we're talking about Amazing Spider-Man number 68 to 75, also known as the Lifeline Tablet Saga or the Stone Tablet Saga. I mean, pick pick, pick your title, Dan. I mean, it's a tablet and it's a saga, okay? <laughs> I'll take that at the very least. Well, right. like many of the issues that we've been talking about this season, Amazing Spider-Man numbers 68 to 75, the Stone or Lifeline Tablet Saga, say that ten times fast, can be found in your local comic shops or Marvel Unlimited, the local library, or on Comixology. Basically, pretty much anywhere you can find comics, you can find these issues. But they were also released just last year as part of a collection called the Lifeline Tablet Saga, which I think is where that name came from, because I think everybody else just referred to it as the Stone Tablet Saga up until now. Yeah, but apparently in that collection there are like there's like a mini series from 1999 referring to the Lifeline tablet, which I that's totally off my radar. Do you know this series, Dan? I do not, so I'm gonna have to check that out. And you can check it out too. You know, go to your comic book shop and ask them if they carry this book, the Lifeline Tablet Saga, or you could probably just order it online. So if you want to read just these issues, that's an easy way to do so. So whether you've read these stories a million times or not at all. We hope you enjoy our episode entitled The Stone Tablet Saga. Or is it the Lifeline Tablet Saga? I'm not even sure.
attacks give me the invulnerability that will carry me into the next millennia. Father! Are you alright? Better than alright. I feel wonderful. Dan, so we're talking about Amazing Spider-Man number 68 through 75 here. Eight whole, big smacking, beautiful Stan Lee, John Romita senior issues here. And, and you know, it's funny, Dan, we've been doing this this new format, all new Amazing Spider-Talk for uh, a season and a half now. And we really haven't, in any of the prior episodes, talked just specifically about one storyline. Uh, that was something we, we did uh, with frequency, obviously, and during our old format, especially during the essential episodes. So I, I guess, you know, just to peer back the curtain a little bit here, uh, in terms of why we chose to talk about the Lifeline tablet, I mean, besides the fact that I kind of bullied you into doing this episode, I feel. It's the best kind of bullying. It's like, it, hey, you're going to eat this ice cream right now. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about this, Dan. Let me talk about it, please. But no, Dan, I mean, and and I think I kind of won you over to my side. Not that you were fighting it all that much, but, uh, you know, I, I, I found found this storyline to be pretty significant from a, you know, Spider-Man historian standpoint, because, you know, especially when I was going back and, and doing the research for, uh, you know, my book a couple of years ago, you know, it, it, it's kind of funny, the, the the whole long-form storytelling, I mean, comics, you know, written for the trade these days, and, um, you know, that's kind of standing standard operating procedure, but this is an instance where this is really Spider-Man's first foray into long-form storytelling, and, and even, like, looking at, like, Marvel's contemporaries, um, I, I don't, you know, the, the only other one that's, like, kind of comes close in terms of being so large in scope and with uh, characters and things going on was probably the Kree Scroll War uh, in Avengers, and that came about a year and a half after uh, the Stone Tablet saga. Um, and Kree Scroll War is considered like one of the most landmark storylines in all of Marvel history. So, uh, because of what it kind of implemented, and you know, in terms of how it told a story. Um, so, you know, obviously, I don't think this one is on par with that but um it it's kind of gets the template going i would say and then beyond just the length of it dan i mean this 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 storyline has a lot of kind of real world social issue implications that uh spider-man comics and comics in general just weren't not, uh delving into at this point until now um looking very strictly at a spider-man micro level uh, this kind of really sells the idea of the street level universe that we talked at length about in the first season uh, with characters like the crime master and and uh, the enforcers and thing. I mean, I feel this kind of takes that idea and, and does it one better because these characters are a little less hokey and, um, you know, kind of silly. I mean, you know, the street level characters during the Lee Ramita run are, are a little more, um, you know, kind of. There's a real 
realistic criminality to them, (laughs) Um, if you know what I mean. Um, It's funny that you say that because one of the reasons I push back on, you know, talking about this on the show is because so this arc, you could look at it kind of. I don't think each issue stands on its own. There are some that are more standalone than others. When we start getting into the kind of villain of the month, uh, kind of middle chapters of this book. But yeah. when I think about this story, I always think about the end of it where it's kind of goofy and, and uh, I mean, in a good way and, and kind of fantastical. And I forget about the street element of it that so dominates the first half and mm. the kind of tablet you know, that eventually would go on to be so fantastical is really downplayed for so much of the story that you can almost forget that it's a a long form story arc that's occurring. And so I had kind of forgotten about how landmark that was. It's, it's, it's a quietly doing it. And in an era where comic books are so loud these days about what they're doing and how spectacular they are, this was really refreshing to read. And I, uh, I, upon reading it immediately was like, Mark was absolutely right to, to <laughs> want this one to be included in, you know, our precious 12 episode format. Fair enough. Well, uh, you know, we'll, we'll have to save that soundbite. Mark was right. Uh, you know, just take that, <laughs> uh, come on, come on fans. To, uh, I, I need you, I need some audio engineers out there to, to, to take that bite and send it and put it on the internet, put it on Twitter. Let's make it happen. Uh, <laughs> you'll, you'll be lucky if I include it in the episode. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> this this is a private conversation occurring right here. Oh, boo, boo, boo. <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, I, I I thought like you know, since we're we're talking about three kind of main points to why we wanted to include this, I thought we'd kind of elaborate on each one in here. So let's 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 start talking a, a little bit more detail about the form of the storyline in terms of the, the the length and and this whole thing of a multi part saga. I mean, you know, again, like. I feel like we take this for granted today. I mean, you know, all it seems like every single comic book storyline is written with what six six issues minimum, right? I mean, you know, yeah. like it's like how many trades can we get out of a storyline? And and you know, obviously, you know, a trade paperback was not, uh, you know, was 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 barely a figment in the in the imaginations of the uh, the big two publishers back in the in the late '60s when this storyline came out. Um, so, um, the fact that they, that, you know, we had seen like some three part stories, like the master planner story, or even some four part stories, like the, um, the, the doc, Ock Spider-Man amnesia storyline that had come about eh, about a dozen issues before this one came out. But this is, you know, to, 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 to do something like, I mean, essentially over three quarters of a calendar year, which is what this was, was, was very ambitious for the time. And you, um, you could only do this if Spider-Man was popular, right? Like this is a, truly a reflection of how much Spider-Man, as we like to say, hit the big time during this run because you're relying on there being enough of a comics culture and interest in this character that people seek him out every month instead of just randomly picking up an issue on a spinner rack. Like right. this in a way sort of reflects it, the, you know, this, this slowly being born collectors mentality that, you know, would start to take over the entire Marvel line where everybody had to tune in for everything. And so when some of these, we'll talk about, you know, like side characters show up from other books, like it, it is truly a reflection of 
how much steam Marvel was gaining at the time. Absolutely. I mean, you know, as you know, the, the old Stanley adage, every comic is somebody's first comic. I mean, I, um, you know, that was that was something that they they kind of held dear, especially during this era. They didn't want someone to just pick something up and not know what was going on. And, and to that point, I feel that this storyline does a it kind of skirts around that issue pretty pretty flawlessly in my mind. I mean, the 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 common thread to all these stories is is the existence. Uh, of this MacGuffin of sorts, the stone tablet. I mean, you know, we don't even really know what it does until the very, very end of the storyline. But all we know is it's something it's, it's expensive. It's his, it's ancient. It's, it's valuable. People want it. And the people who want it are the bad guys. You know what I mean? Like, so without having to get into too much mythology of what the tablet is, you know, it's just it, it's it's a premise that can be kind of sold at the beginning of each issue, whether it's Kingpin or Shocker or Quicksilver or uh, or Silvermane and the Magia. It's this. Oh, these people are after the tablet now. And that's kind of the thread that connects all these issues. Uh, you don't necessarily have to have read every single one to just pick up a comic here and know what's going on. Absolutely. So let's talk about the kind of, I guess, three stages of the story and kind of give an idea. If you haven't read this story, what what exactly is it about and what makes it special? You know, the, 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 the first part, the first couple of issues, it's, it deals with Kingpin trying to get the tablet and the tablet being at Empire State University, which is where we start uh, also getting into some of the social issues. But there there you know there there's protesting on the campus and kingpin uses that as an opportunity to st- to steal the tablet at this point kingpin is is really kind of establishing himself as uh certainly during the remita run as spider-man's main rogue i mean you know goblin has kind of been taken out of the equation i mean we just kind of wrapped up a big doc ock story and and he wouldn't be coming back for a while um, so, uh, the fact that, you know, Kingpin is the guy here, um, you know, that, that's significant. And we're, we're also getting like a peek into Kingpin's like, uh, expanded universe, which I think, uh, you know, Ramita would, would, would get into, uh, later on, uh, not during this, this arc, but, but later on in his run. I mean, we, 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 we are under the impression that there's a wife that's scary. <laughs> Do you like that throughout this where it's like, oh, but you're afraid of your wife, right, Wilson? <laughs> yeah, she kind of makes an appearance. Like she's like a shadowy figure in a car later on. Right, right. Um, and then the second part of this is like these like kind of like series of standalone issues, right, which is kind of cool. It's cool. It's the least effective part to me. I mean you've got Quicksilver – and the shocker and our favorite man in leather man mountain marco yes um, who kind of hangs around for the rest of the story in a way that the shocker and clearly quicksilver do not right right and just and just to make no quicksilver is not actually really like the villain of the month per se here um actually you know this was some of stan lee's uh you know world famous salesmanship here and that he you know quicksilver's brought in as a way to to tie into the Avengers story, and but it, it it feels, I mean, it's it's clearly like a marketing ploy, but at the same token, it feels a little more organic than say like Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number One, where like they're just not even being subtle about the oh look, there's Thor flying, go read his book. You know, the only <laughs> um, way that book could be less subtle is if you open the book 
and it was just a series of ads instead right. of comics. Like, yeah, <laughs> that's essentially what a large part of that that is. Yeah, this this is harmless, I, I think, and it and it works because you know there's a an idea. The transition into this kind of section of the book is that um, the kingpin frames Spider Man for helping him steal the tablet. So, you know, in order to prove himself worthy of the Avengers, Quicksilver is going to take out Spider-Man and save the city of New York several thousand dollars, I guess, in I guess. cop fees. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and yeah, and it, like you said, it's, it's you know, Quicksilver's on the outs uh, with the Avengers based on something that happened in that series. Um, so again, it, it, it kind of makes sense and, and it's a good way to get someone to be like, oh, I guess I have to check out this Avengers book. What's going on with Quicksilver? You know what I mean? And, and, and not for nothing, I think it's a pretty cool cover that we get here. I mean, I, I, I like how Ramita renders, um, Quicksilver throughout this storyline. So it's oh, kind of yeah. forgiven. It's fun. It's fun. Hey, can I coin a new phrase for this kind of story? Yeah. What's that? I'm going to call it the monthly misunderstanding. Oh, it sounds like very sitcomish. I love it. There we go. Uh, for all the issues that are based on a faulty disagreement, I guess. There you go. It's like the template for uh, for a Marvel team up. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, you know the last kind of arc to this arc, <laughs> arc within an arc, <laughs> is you know it deals with Silvermane and the Magia, and this is kind of like you said where it gets a little silly um, because then we kind of learn that this this ancient tablet actually is basically has the code for the fountain of youth and then we get like kurt connor's into this and he's kind of fighting his lizard uh, instincts again to to decode the tablet and then uh you know silvermane gets a potion from it uh becomes young and and kind of frightening looking uh like almost very you know it's like you know a truly faustian bargain being struck here and, you know, in that vein, then uh, reverts all the way back into being a baby, which is kind of like, what? Like, what did I just read? <laughs> the creepiest thing about it to me, other than the, the image of, like, the child disappearing into the closet thing, which is terrifying, um, is, like, that young Silvermane looks like an angry Peter Parker. So you get this, like, kind of strange moment where... You know, Spider Man is chasing after himself in some some sort of way. <laughs> oh, 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 sweet youth! How we all look like Peter when yeah. we're young. <laughs> oh, John Romita Senior. Um, yeah. So, Mark, you know, rereading this for this episode. I mean, I, I've read this a ton of times, but you know, it always comes to me fresh every time I read it. I, I can't, I can't tell you. I mentioned it earlier, just how like pleasurable it was to read this because. As an eight-issue story, there is kind of something to the looseness of its construction that we don't see very often anymore. Everything kind of now, if it's an eight-parter, it's got to be this momentous occasion where all the pieces of the clock are working perfectly. I liked how much room to breathe there was in this and spend time with Peter at home. There's a, a great moment where he just kind of falls asleep, exhausted into his pillow. And I thought, man, it's been a long time since I've seen... A moment like that in a Spider-Man comic. Uh, I got to say, like, this was really just fun, truly fun to read. How about you? Like, what was your experience reading this through before we get into kind of the details of it? Oh, no, I, I agree. Absolutely. And, and and like you said, I mean, it's it's kind of refreshing in retrospect, especially when kind of compared to today's storyline. I mean, there's 
it's loose, but like at the same token, there's a, there's enough there's enough of a thread here that that ties it all together in a way that where it doesn't feel like too uh, aimless, you know. Like I'm not like just like you know as I'm reading through this, and granted, you know, I have the power of just binging through these issues thanks to like Marvel Unlimited, but. You know, I'm not sitting there thinking to myself, oh, man, we're still we're still talking about this tablet. What's going on? You know, like, when are we going to move on? Like, whereas, you know, I feel like sometimes today I kind of I, I kind of get tired because I think like there's so much effort in today's stories to, like you say, you know, make sure that every gear is is moving in, in you know, in, in a synchronized and like it, it, it makes it feel forced instead of like kind of just. I don't know. Like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna do a little Avengers tie-in here while we're while we're also dealing with this stone tablet tie-in. You know, like it's kind of like, oh, they're just they're just going with it, but it works. I I I I find it refreshing, and and yet you know these stories are absolutely all connected together, but they're not so connected that like you know if you missed a if you missed a chapter, you would be completely like lost i mean maybe if you saw like silverman becoming a baby at the end you wouldn't know what that was about but other than that (laughs) i think the trick to this storyline is that the villain keeps changing uh like the MacGuffin is not terribly interesting but the villains all are and their relationship to it and their desires for it um i think so often now that the opposite is done in comics where the MacGuffin is the you know the key to the story, and the MacGuffin is never as interesting as the motives surrounding it. Um, I think right now, you know, this story to me, in, in reflected in modern stories, most clearly seems to be the you know Chip Zdarsky spectacular run seems yeah. very much a you know hewn in the cloth of this story. But um, you know the the villain remains the tinkerer throughout and, yeah. and, and is not, thus not very interesting. And I think this, you know, feels very much the opposite. Or even the whole thing with um, Scorpio in the first, you know, throughout the bulk of volume four for Amazing Spider-Man. And like, you know, it's like Scorpio and the Zodiac key. And it was kind of like, all right, are we, are we moving on on this? Or are we just going to keep banging this drum you know like you you, kind of needed it to get changed up i mean by the end of this kingpin is i mean you know yeah they're they're referring to kingpin but i don't even think he shows up through the last four or five issues of this right yeah we just move on to another crime family there you go because you know there's plenty of room for multiple crime families now the other thing that i think really kind of sets this story apart is, is is the social the social aspect of it. I mean, this this is it's funny. Whenever I I think of a Spider-Man comic in protests, I mean, before I think of these of this storyline, I always think of that scene in um, Dicko's last issue where you know Peter in full uh, Iron Rand mode goes like, "Oh, what do they want this time?" You know, what I mean? <laughs> and uh, about the protesters and just the true juxtaposition here where it's like. You know, it's 1969 now. I mean, you know, the United States is a is is you know a tinderbox waiting to explode in terms of the real world with Vietnam and with race issues. Um, and you know, yeah, there's still a glossy sheen to the social conflict of this storyline. I don't want to pretend like you know that they were really like 
getting under, you know, into the gritty of of some of the issues that are plague that were plaguing America. But for for superhero comics, this is this is this is edgier stuff, I'd say, right? Yeah, I totally agree, and I actually think it's pretty like even-handed for the most part, at least up until uh, the conclusion of it, where it feels kind of like a false ending. We'll talk about it in a moment, but I I like how this is explored through the eyes of Peter Parker. Um, even his stance is, in a way, kind of um, respectful to the Ditko issue. He's not totally on board with this kind of social uh, revolution and where it's headed or how it's being enacted. And I think that's really quite interesting. It's, um, it says a lot about Stan and his politics and, uh, you know, I guess like what kind of figure he would be in terms of um, pushing social movements ahead. And, you know, he had Stan's soapbox where he would often talk about his, you know, kind of like he's, – he's a pretty liberal guy. Um, right. but, but here I think he takes a more kind of like cautionary approach, which right. I find really interesting. Um, do you well, want to set up what this argument is about? Yeah, yeah. I just just to that to that point, I you know, it's the old the old uh, Michael Jordan saying, you know, Republicans buy sneakers too, you know. <laughs> like, yeah. Um you know, that's kind of what I think of when I when I read this story uh in retrospect. But yeah, so you know, before I i I think to set up the setup here, let's let's you know that I I find the central figure here to be Joe Robbie Robertson, who uh, had been introduced about a dozen or so issues earlier by Stan and Ramita. He historically he's very significant because he's he's um, one of the first um, African American ca- characters in superhero comics to kind of not be portrayed as a racist as a racial stereotype i mean you know and and so much so that like until these issues i don't even think the comics make note of the fact that he's black he's just kind of in the newsroom as as jonah's right hand man and up until this point the fact that he's an african-american is is kind of glossed over which is interesting in its own right that it took them like almost a year before they finally were like oh yeah that's right we have a black character and there's stuff going on in america in the real world right now uh that's racially tinged and motivated maybe we should make use of that right yeah absolutely but but again like they even acknowledge like the silence about it as like a part of the story Yes, well, that's exactly it. So um, when we're, when we're on the campus and you know the tablet, the you know the MacGuffin is on display at the university and it's being it's being held in this exhibition hall, and um, Rand, Randy, who's who's Joe's son, uh, and some of his some of his college friends, although like you get the sense like Randy is kind of rolling with these guys, but I don't know if they're truly friends because they kind of. You know they they they're very leery of Randy because they I you know the 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 idea is that he's not revolutionary enough right right and and they even call his father an Uncle Tom right like right. like do we need to be rolling with this son of an Uncle Tom does does right. that make him nephew Tom <laughs> I'm not yes. sure um, I don't know and the character we're talking about is this character Josh Kittling who yeah. I don't think has ever appeared again. In Spider-Man comics after this arc, um, which is surprising because I think he comes on pretty strong here, right? Like he seems like a pretty strong character. Yeah, I mean it's it's 
uh, again, it's it's one of those funny things, you know. In retrospect, when you when you when you talk about race issues in comics, uh, especially Marvel comics, I, I always feel like people come come back to uh, the X Men uh, because you know they've always, even though Stan kind of denies it at this point, you know, people were drawing kind of their own conclusions that the X Men was an allegory for kind of the Martin Luther King versus Malcolm X argument over. Um, you know, black America, you know, whereas, you know, one side is, you know, we want to be accepted as equals to 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 the whites. And then, you know, the Malcolm X, the more revolutionary side, which was nowhere superior to the whites and should be treated accordingly. Um, and not that necessarily that Josh is saying that they are superior, but like, you know, this this whole idea about Robbie's. And, and I guess by proxy, Randy's uh, silence and Uncle Tomnish, if you will, is the fact that like, you know, Randy is kind of uh, Robbie's speaking to this point of no, you know, like like I want to use my role as J. Jonah Jameson's right hand man. You know, well, we can make good in the community. We can do good by by being equals with them. And and Josh and, and his friends kind of see it as, you know, they're just giving in. They're appeasing. Uh, they're not taking a stand for their own. They're not being their own man. Uh, and it's, you know, I mean, this is this is a very real racial issue. And I don't think like the the language is as charged, although say, calling someone an Uncle Tom is pretty charged. I mean, and the fact that yeah. that shows up in, 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 you know, plain sight, you know, in, in itself is pretty charged. But like, you know, like if you go back and like read like Malcolm X's uh uh, biography. I mean, it's not it's not as charged as like the language he's using about yeah. about Black America and that. But like you know, we're 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 we're, we're kind of brushing to uh, up against that point, which I think is significant. And we're talking about an amazing Spider-Man comic. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like, uh, and to me, this is like one of the reasons I collect this comic or collected this comic uh, is because it is a nice like you know, time capsule into the past, you know, and, and what was going on. And this feels very immediate. Like I, it, 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 reading this, it's like, I, I wasn't alive then, but it paints a very clear picture. Um, yeah. you know, even if it is watered down for the pages of a comic and maybe, you know, it has a very like white oriented perspective, but, I, but to me, it seems very fair and very, um, empathetic towards the questions. Even the black community would have, with itself over how it needs to handle these issues. The issues here being about a, you know, like a low rent dorm on campus. But, you know, that whole point aside, you know, it, it feels so much larger in the way that superhero comics can. You know, they can paint this tapestry that stands in for something far more grand. Yeah. And just and just kind of to, to backtrack a little bit, like, you know, when I was talking about the X-Men allegory earlier, it's important to note that, you know, in X Men, the 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 Magneto and the and you know they're the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. They're the bad guys here. You know, these kids. No one is portrayed as being bad here. You know, like like it's it's you know, like their their point is given agency. It's it's a, it's a valid point. No one is like being like. I mean, yes, Peter is kind of being cautious and and non-committal about where he stands on this but that doesn't necessarily mean that he thinks anyone is wrong well that's what i like about uh this like you know peter you know he's very reluctant to get involved in the protesting because 
they seem so extreme in their actions. You know, it, it does eventually escalate to them doing like, you know, stealing and uh, like, you know, but, and scheming to damage property, you know, not on the level that the kingpin might. Uh, but, uh, you know, Peter says, you know, I, I, my, my heart is with them, but I need to hear all sides. I need to hear what the Dean of the school, who's the opposing force or the presumed opposing force has to say. And to me that like, you know, I, I don't always want to think of Peter as Stan's mouthpiece, but, but, but I can't help but think that like, perhaps that was Stan's political stance at the time is that like. You know, both sides need to be heard in kind of a civil way, uh, right. you know, before we kind of lean into extremism. And, you know, reading this today, I don't want to, you know, get too political on this show, but, you know, it, I found it really refreshing to kind of read a story about this when so much of our, I guess, like everything we, you know, read and, and are a part of these days seems so extreme. Uh, You know, so I I found that refreshing at the very least. And then, of course, apropos of nothing, like all of this, like kind of equivocating from Peter just makes him look like a total wuss in front of Gwen. Right. Yeah. Who like like, I didn't remember being so much of a firebrand. But here she stands up for herself in front of all these guys in this, uh, you know, this uh, picket, I guess. And uh, and is ready to throw down with them. It actually reminds me a lot of like ultimate Gwen. Where right, she like right. pulls a knife on on people at the school. Uh, I was like, okay, I, I I'm I'm ready for this version of Gwen. I don't think we would yeah. ever fully get it, but and yet at the same time, she, you know, she's defending someone who she herself is kind of questioning whether or not he's really worth defending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it's like you kind of like go back to this and you kind of say to yourself, wait, why did she stay with Peter after this? I mean, not I mean, we know why she stayed. We like. Yes, we know where Peter's coming from. We know that he's truly brave and courageous and and has values and ethics, but uh Gwen doesn't see what we see. <laughs> it's kind of kind of amazing <laughs> in, yeah, in retrospect. Right. Even Peter seems to be a bit miffed about it. He's like, "Why is anybody spending time with me? I've got so many other things to deal with." <laughs> right, right, right. Things here do get resolved fairly neatly. I mean, you know, I I'm I'm not trying to be glib, but you know, the fact that you know these kids, these protesters, kind of you know cause cause a scene, cause some some destruction on the campus, and then of course the tablet gets disappeared because the kingpin lifts it while everyone is distracted. I mean, like they're kind of just like being held in a in a in a room on campus. Really, it's not even like you know like like no one gets thrown behind bars, which doesn't seem to reflect what reality would dictate would have happened. And right, I mean, you know, like. Yeah. These kids would have been at least in, in a cell for the night, I would think. Although I was surprised, you know, again, looking at this through a modern context and through the news we read every day, like the police pull their guns on these kids. That's and, true. You know, and, and Peter says, like, this is, a, you know, it's like basically a, a matchbox waiting to go up. But, you know, typical Peter finding an ability to exploit a, a potential tragedy by taking photos. Yeah. Good old Peter. <laughs> yeah. You know, this 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 whole thing over the low rent dorms kind of gets resolved with like the dean showing up at the end to be like, I I was for the dorms where I just needed the 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 board's approval first. And everyone's like, oh, OK, let's go have a Coke. <laughs> <laughs> um, first one to the coffee bean. 
There you go. And, and, and for the most part, these issues kind of disappear over the duration of this arc until you, you, as you, before we started recording, you, you kind of reminded me of this really interesting scene towards the end. Yeah, there's this great scene towards the end in the midst of the whole kind of goofiness with the tablet, which we're going to talk about. It kind of feels out of nowhere, but it's a really powerful scene that I think, um, is one for the Spider-Man history books where, you know, Randy confronts his fa- father, Robbie, about how he wants to drop out of school uh, because he just doesn't think that getting a degree and kind of, you know, working in what he calls Whitey's world uh, will really get him far. And Robbie spells out for him again, you know, the value of proving himself within, you know, the already kind of established social, you know, confines and and, uh, and 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 carving out a space for himself there. And then the scene gets complicated because Jonah Jameson, you know, J. Jonah Jameson, rather, uh, storms in after kind of like going into like a brief coma from a heart attack, uh, <laughs> uh, spurred on by uh, the Spider-Man's threatening him, which is another yes. interesting moment. Anyway, he storms in and basically demands that, you know, Robbie change the headlines and and is yelling at him. And Robbie stands up for himself in front of his son saying, you know, I run the news beat. You can write all the editorials you want about Spider-Man, but so long as I run the news, we're going to present the truth. You can fire me if you want to. And Randy sees this moment and really looks up to his father, seeing that, you know what, he isn't just an Uncle Tom. He's standing his ground and, and willing to take, you know, risk his livelihood for it. And it really gains respect for his father, and he changes his attitude about education. And to me, this moment, you know, Jonah kind of steps back. It's a real defining moment for Robbie and Jonah's relationship and gives you an idea about how Robbie is able to kind of act with integrity even in the position that he's in. And then back to the social, you know, stuff, um, there's an interesting moment where, you know, even after all this, Randy says, like, how can you keep working for this racist? And J. Jonah Jameson tells him, you know, I mean, Robbie tells him that J. Jonah Jameson isn't, in fact, a racist. He just has a real, like, crazy thing about Spider-Man. And that it's important that we don't label him a racist because it's we need to know who our real enemies are. Um, yeah. And to me, I think is a really valuable lesson even today, you know, uh, you know, th- that we keep an eye on who our real enemies are and not make causes of everything. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's a that's a great takeaway. And and again, it's it's kind of to the point of what we've been talking about all this season versus last season. I I feel like this is another example of kind of Ramita and Stan working together to kind of not necessarily soften the edges, but you know, J- Jonah in under the you know the the pencil of Dicko was was more one dimensional. Great character, don't get me wrong, but like you know. He more or less was a villain. He was a villain without a superpower, I feel, in that in those first thirty-eight issues. I think Dicko's Jonah would have fired Robbie right then and there. Yeah. Well, I don't think Dicko's Jonah would have a Robbie working for him. That's true too, yeah. You know, like like why would he have anybody that and I'm not saying because Dicko's Jonah was a racist, I'm just saying that why would why would Dicko's Jonah have anybody who could potentially disagree with him to the degree that Robbie does, you know, like question my integrity, you're out, you know. <laughs> so it's just an interesting kind of, again, display of the evolution. 
these are always the issues I come back to, uh, the comics I come back to, uh, when we get a great Robbie story today or, or even those great Robbie stories from like Jerry Conway's second run with spectacular and web of Spider-Man, uh, like the, the, the Robbie tombstone stories, you know, it, it, it just, you know, without these issues, I don't think you, you, you have that depth with that or, or the potential for that depth with this character. And, and Robbie's a great character. I mean, you know, again, for historical context, you had black Panther, uh, who had just, debuted in fantastic four uh like a year or two earlier and that's it for black characters falcon wouldn't come until the end of 1969 when this story was being published in spider-man so like you didn't even have him yet so robbie is 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 a true trailblazer and trendsetter i think i i forget that sometimes i don't know if you forget that uh if you forget that damn but like i forget that sometimes just how much of a pioneer robbie is in terms of comics yeah and i think he kind of you know he has a gravitas still in the comics today you know i don't think it's because of maybe his skin color anymore um you know and and the kind of history behind what that meant but i do Mm. think like these kind of stories allowed himself to cement himself in the spider-man lineup as not just a transient character that we could see every now and again he's a really mainstay maybe even more than jonah now he seems almost like more of a present character than Jonah in some some instances because he can have that kind of depth even if it's just the does he or doesn't he know Peter's you know alternate persona yeah talking again about the differences between Dicko and Ramita I mean you know we had our Ramita rogues episode two episodes ago and you know I think we kind of safely came to the conclusion that Ramita's contributions to the rogues gallery were nowhere near as as impressive as dick goes and yet you read a story like this and you know it kind of brings me back you know where where is spider-man most comfortable is it fighting the likes of a guy with four mechanical arms or a guy who turns into sand or who can harness electricity or is it fighting like thugs and criminals and mob bosses and and characters kind of like what we're dealing with here throughout this stone tablet uh saga and and in its own way i i kind of think this feels more natural to me dan in terms of what spider-man what like the kind of stuff spider-man really should be doing on a day-to-day basis i don't know what do you what do you think yeah i mean at least in this stage of his development now he feels you know like he's like figured out how being spider-man works and can handle this kind of larger threat but there is something really fun about, you know, how he does get to tower over these thugs and kind of use his powers to outsmart them in a way that he he kind of has to be even bigger and bolder now with the kind of mm. threats that he f- fights. And I love all the interweaving narratives of this. Um, it really is a different style of comic almost, like a different genre of comic the, in these issues. Like the street fighting is one thing, but... The kind of writing, this kind of mystery and handoff of this tablet from character to character, we haven't really seen this. I guess Jerry Conway's uh, you know, story a few years back was the closest we've gotten to this kind of a writing. Yeah, and I'm sure Jerry would would probably cite something like this as an inspiration for that. You know, it's funny with Kingpin. You know, Kingpin's a really interesting character. We we talked about this a bit in the Rogues episode, but. You know, something that always strikes me about Ramita's kingpin is that he really doesn't have powers or even like contraptions outside of that cane, which is still kind of weird to me. His his laser cane uh, laser. Uh, <laughs> but 
at the same token, like you, you, you totally buy him as a threat to Spider-Man, a physical threat to Spider-Man because he's just so physically unique. I mean, he's, he's this big fat looking dude, but you know, they, they really establish every chance possible that he's, he's fast, he's muscular, uh, he's beaten up his own henchmen for training. I mean, you know, like this guy is just, uh, he's a physical freak. So you can kind of like forgive what would otherwise seem to be a ridiculous appearance and be like, oh no, this guy, this guy does pose a threat because he's just so physically different from anything else we've seen in these comics. And I love how Spider-Man throws it back against him. Like I'm not one to fat shame, but you can't help but laugh at all of his kind of like fat jokes that he directs <laughs> at the Kingpin. Um, my favorite one is where he says to him, I thought fat people were supposed to be jolly. They ought to throw you out of the union. <laughs> really, really great stuff, which I, you know, obviously is a precursor to that great scene in uh, Learning Curve from the yes. Ultimate Bendis run. Yeah, absolutely. And then, like, just in terms of some of the other villains, uh, like the street levelness of them. I mean, like, it's funny. Like, you have Shocker, who I'm sorry, I still think he should be called Vibrator. It's just just based on what the character is, but like it, it's it, it does seem it seems to me that Shocker is definitely kind of like for this story especially it's like Ramita's answer to the problem of a character like Spider Man fighting someone like Electro or Sandman because it's like you know these are these are like supernatural style characters Electro and Sandman and and you know those kind of villains were more par for. The Fantastic Four or the Hulk or somebody like that, not not someone with these the street tendency. And Shocker kind of like takes those kind of powers, but you know, it just kind of simplifies it by being like, I have an invention and I use this invention and it can cause havoc, but like it's still very kind of simple and re- and and refined and not very abstract or you know like I, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 just an interesting kind of inversion on on like a, a more kind of henchman type villain in the spider-man universe right yeah I, and i i love that about the shocker and you know the simplicity he he can still like you know vibrate off spider-man's blows but spider-man just has to take a gauntlet away from him and he's completely stuck you know and right. uh, and it, it's really great we did get a great message from a listener in regards to our uh, our Mermita Rogues episodes, uh, a listener from uh, Greece, do you want to read uh, the message that we got, Mark? Yeah, yeah, you know, kind of to my point about what the shocker should be called. Uh, our, our reader Costas uh, Karasikos, and I, if I said that wrong, I apologize. Uh, writes in shocker and vibrator translate both in the Greek word for vibrator. So at one point, a second publisher took a crack at publishing uh, the Amazing Spider-Man comic, uh, and the publisher had this knack to translate everything very literally, including names. So there's actually like a reprint of a of a shocker story uh, with a great Mark Bagley cover, where uh, on bright red letters declaring that the Amazing Spider-Man comes face to face with the nasty vibrator. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, so there, there is, there is some fun in translation there, a true tower of Babel situation here. 
uh, in Greece, apparently, uh, you know, the shocker, shocker is the vibrator. So, um, Nick Spencer and Steve Lieber, if you're listening to this episode, you know, you could have had some fun with that and superior foes, I think. There's, uh, we don't have to travel far to know that there's, it's not even another universe where the character is named the vibrator. It literally exists just several thousand miles away from us. There you go. So, um, yeah, so, so I, again, I like, I like the use of the shocker here. And then, of course, like Silvermane coming in, uh, at the end just to kind of show, hey, uh, there, there's more than one mob boss in this world. I mean, like, you know, it's funny, like, uh, during the Dicko run, we had the, the, the Green Goblin Crime Master story, and it was kind of like, we're going to fight to run the, run the mob. Um, whereas, whereas I feel like this one is a little more refined. There's families and, and, you know, I guess someone was reading his Mario Puzo or something and, and got some inspiration, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's even uh, a character that I forgot about Caesar Cicero, the kind of crooked lawyer, uh, to, to all these guys, the sort of fixer type. He's the fixer. <laughs> <laughs> Was he? Was he? Did a, did he fix anything for J. Jonah Jameson? Or uh... <laughs> <laughs> that was his third client was J. Jonah Jameson. Uh, <laughs> All right, that's 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 as political as we get. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so again, it, it's it's not not that it's the most significant thing in the world. I mean, as you said at the beginning, Dan. I mean, Spider Man and Street Level. Uh, it's not the first time, and and you know, obviously, we've kind of naturally evolved away from it as like spider-man has become more comfortable but i i I do like how this storyline you know kind of moves away from the ditko villains um you know we had had a run of stories up and through this point where it was a lot of like vulture and craven and doc ock and I feel like in doing doing stone tablet saga we really kind of get away with it ramita kind of has a little more freedom to to create a, a rogue universe and and reading this in retrospect makes me think maybe I was a little too hard on some of his rogues in in that um that one episode I don't know maybe or or maybe I should have been hard I don't know what, are, what you are you speaking think? about Man Mountain Marco are, are do you, are you falling in love with his leathery chaps All right well Man Mountain Marco is still pretty ridiculous but. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I agree. I mean, the shocker is handled here with like real seriousness, you know. Like, yeah. he's a real threat. Good old Herman Schultz, you know. He's he's still he's he's a toughie. Just depends on um, you know who's writing him, I guess. <laughs> well, Mark, I thought this was a really great run to read, and uh, I think absolutely like it makes me regret not including this in our essentials. Although it's such a long story and such a kind of scattered story, I I didn't think about it as one collected thing. It's all right, Dan. You know, we're, we, that's that's why we have the power of the new format. Uh, we don't have to talk about essentials anymore. It's all essential. Of course it is. Of course it is. Well, uh, why don't we take it on out of here, Mark? Well, sure. Well, thanks for joining us for our sixth episode of our second season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. Dan, our next episode will be out in about two weeks. And uh, what's going to be the title for that one? Yeah, Mark, the show is going to be called I'm Spectacular. It's our discussion about the first true and often forgotten Spider-Man spinoff in print, known as the Spectacular Spider-Man magazine. It would serve as the template for so many other Spider-Man titles over the years, and uh, I can't wait to talk about it with you, Mark. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, do, do you have either of these issues in your collection, Dan? Or uh... You know, I don't, but I think I'm going to probably have to go out and get them. Uh, also, for our Patreon subscribers, be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week for a special review of Amazing Spider-Man 7.99. Remember, for just $3.99 a month, the price of a new comic, you'll get access to our exclusive new issue reviews, Swarm B book reviews, extended interviews, mailbags, and more. And for $10 or more a month, you'll get access to some awesome commissioned artwork. I, I guess it's it's pretty official at this point. Uh, at some point over the next couple of months, I would say, the next commissioned piece of artwork is going to be coming the way, courtesy of one of my personal favorite artists, the great Alex Saviuk. And what did Alex Saviuk do in regards to Spider-Man, just for people if they're not familiar with his name? Absolutely. Well, Alex, appropriately enough, is kind of – uh, known for for evoking Ramita uh, in his artwork, uh, he worked on Web of Spider Man uh, for a number of years uh, in like late eighties, early nineties, and then he also took over for Ramita in penciling the Amazing Spider Man uh, daily newspaper comic strip. So, I mean, I know you have a personal Alex Saviak commission i love him because he did my first ever issue of amazing spider-man that i ever bought off the spinner rack 296 that was kind of like that transition period uh before mcfarlane came on and uh i mean you know the guy has just got like a classic spider-man aesthetic very very ramita ish but in his own way just certainly knew how to draw the ladies uh, so, and, and I, I, I think that our piece is going to have some of the ladies involved with it. So, uh, you know, cheesecake, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like we got Ron friends to do Steve Dicko. We're essentially getting Alex Saviak to give us something Ramita inspired to kind of cap out the end of this season. Yeah, it's going to work out pretty perfectly. I, I'm, I'm very excited by this, and I'm very excited that you know after kind of months of of negotiating back and forth, we 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 got um, we got the green light for something here. So uh, I cannot wait, Dan. And I'm so excited about it. I'm going to throw in a bonus print as well. That'll be a surprise. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but it'll, I'm going to throw in a bonus print. Last time I threw in a Humberto Ramos print. So uh, you know. For everybody who's a part of our Excelsior Club, uh, you know, get psyched for what we got coming your way. Oh, man. I don't even know what your bonus print is. That's crazy. <laughs> there we go. So um, also, everybody, please be sure to check out some of our other shows like The Ultimate Spin, which is wrapping up the Bendis run with Miles Morales. We got one more issue for that. And what was just recently announced, the end of the Spider-Gwen run uh, from Jason Latour and Robbie Rodriguez. And also be sure to check out our new podcast, The Untold Talks of Spider-Man, where uh, our co-hosts recently discussed the Marvel Knights Spider-Man run by Mark Millar and Terry Dodson. Plus, we've also got the Amazing Spider Slack community for you to join. Just check this episode's description for a link to join our Spider-Man talking community. Mark, you recently kind of like jumped into the Spider Slack. Tell us about your experiences there and what people should join up for. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a great place for conversation on a whole range of different topics related to comics and comic media and, of course, Spider-Man. And, and I've enjoyed it. And, you know, I've kind of – I'm not going to lie, Dan. I've kind of enjoyed coming into a couple of discussions and just throwing some bombs in there like, ah, oh, no, this story's terrible. Or, oh, hey, Dan, 
I'm going to goad you about annuals or whatever because, you know, that's what I do. I, I, I'm a troll, Dan. It's cool, right? I, I mean, you know, but I'm a lovable troll. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm thankful you joined or not, but uh, <laughs> it certainly made things more colorful. So, yeah, you uh, join us on Spider Slack. It'll be a lot of fun, I guarantee, until we all decide to band together and boot Mark out. Oh, come on. I haven't done anything that controversial yet. All right, Mark. Well, where can we find you on the internet for the controversial things you are already doing? Uh, right. Well, I, I have been posting on Twitter about comic stuff more, Dan, because, you know, someone told me I need to post more about comics. I will lower the gun. I will lower the gun. Uh, but uh, you can find me at Chasing ASM Blog, and of course you can find me on SuperiorSpiderTalk.com, ChasingAmazingBlog.com, and my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Every couple of weeks I get a tweet or a Facebook post from somebody saying, hey, I just got your book, and I'm very excited that the people are still buying the book, still getting the book. Um, I ask you all again, because I hate to be a broken record here, but if you get it, and you read it and you love it, or even if you're just okay with it, just put a review up somewhere. Um, it, it helps the searchability and it can get the book into more people's hands. Uh, Dan, what about you? Where can we find you? Yeah, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at, at SupSpiderTalk, where I'm talking about Spider-Man-related things. And anytime I do a review over on AmazingSpiderTalk.com, you can go read it there. Um, I was recently invited on another great comic podcast called the Savage Land Podcast to kind of talk about uh, you know modern stories and comics and even about how we started this podcast, Mark. And that's an awesome comic book show. So I want to point everybody to my episode over on the Savage Land Podcast for a lot of additional fun that I've been doing. So yeah, that there's been there's plenty to see that I'm doing online. Uh, but, uh, Mark, you know, we got to wrap this thing up. And, uh, one of the most important things about our show is that we fill people with all kinds of inspiration and spirit for everyday life, what they should take with them when they're walking on their street level route, maybe fighting the street level foes as they do. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm meandering here, but I'm really just trying to get to the point, which is Mark, you have this phrase you like to say to, to put hope into the hearts of man what what is it's, that phrase i was gonna say dan i feel like we're going back to the uncle ben story with how meandering you're again <laughs> <laughs> like uh but to cut to the chase yes my my inspirational quote is with great podcasts must also come the all-new amazing spider talk 